the growth of the early church, as we've been studying about the last few months, as we've looked at the first four chapters so far in Acts, it really has been nothing short of, of incredible. It's hard to deny the fact of, of all that was going on had to have been a movement of the Holy Spirit. When you think about it, this was just a small group of unqualified men and women. They didn't have any money. They didn't have much power. They didn't have influence. But what they were able to accomplish in just a matter of a few months, literally they turned the course of history. They turned the world upside down. But they did have two specific things going for them that was in their direction. The first thing that we know the early church had going for them was they were completely devoted to the message of the gospel. They believed it. They believed the gospel message so much so that they rearranged their entire lives according to what Jesus had told them. Not only did they believe the gospel when they rearranged in their lives according to it, they also had the power of the Holy Spirit who was moving in amongst each and every one of them. But here's my hope. My hope is that as we continue reading of these stories that, that Luke wrote in the, in the um, book of Acts, that we don't simply read these stories and think, man, God sure did some amazing things back then. But instead, my hope is that as we read these stories, as we study the book of, book of Acts together, that we'll collectively come together and realize that God is leading and guiding us through this book, at least the first few chapters of this book, to see that these stories are not just about these men and women, but these stories are actually about us. They're about his church today if we will take the message and the truths in these scriptures and apply them to us as individual Christians, but also collectively to our church family. This morning in Acts chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to go ahead and turn there. We're going to see uh, a moment of failure and tragedy in the early church. Again, I believe that, that God is going to warn some of us specifically as we read this story in Acts chapter 5. So let me warn you again, don't listen to this story as this is what God did thousands of years ago, but for some of us, maybe this will be a revelation to what God is doing in our hearts and what God is doing in our lives today. Before we begin in Acts chapter 5, as I always try to do, I want to make sure that we're reading Scripture in context and provide the, the big picture before we jump into our, our scene. So a few verses before we get to Acts chapter 5, we'll set the story up. So let's begin with Acts chapter 4. Let's look at verses 34 through 30, uh, go through 37. Verses 34, 35, it says, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. It's clear to see that these early Christians, that they had this strong sense that their community was more important than the things that they owned. Their community they valued more than the possessions that they had. One writer, when he was writing about Acts, I love the way he put it. He said, the gospel had loosened their grip on their stuff and tightened their grip on people. It's so true, isn't it? That's what happens when the gospel gets a hold of you. It's a whole priority shift. It's our things become less valuable so we don't hold so tightly to the possessions that we have, but instead we loosen our grip on our things and we tighten our grip on people because we know that Jesus came, he lived, he died for people. 
You keep reading it in Acts chapter 4, the last two verses of chapter 4, it says, And then Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Listen to what he did. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. As you read through the book of Acts, I have to believe that Barnabas is one of the coolest figures in the whole book of Acts. He's mentioned six times, and we don't have time to go through every time he's mentioned in there, but a summary of what we see every time that, that Barnabas is mentioned, the six times in Acts, is that he is always laying down his money and picking people up. Every time we see him, we see that his value, he does not value the things that he owns, but he's laying his possessions down and he's getting his grip tightened on the people that the Lord has placed in front of them. And then we jump into chapter five. In the very first verse of chapter five, it begins with, but a man named Ananias. Now you have to take note, whenever the first chapter starts with the word, but you know that he's making a stark contrast. So we've just talked about Barnabas, who is this generous man who is always full of compassion, full of mercy. And now we're going to see someone who's in direct contrast to this full of um, compassion and mercy, and it's going to be Ananias. It says, but Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only a part of it back and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So Satan comes and he fills Ananias' heart. And it says that Ananias begins to lie to the Holy Spirit. What's the lie? He's saying, hey, just keep back some of the money that you sold from this land. Now, before we move ahead, it's important to know that he was not commanded, you must sell this land. He wasn't even commanded that you must sell this land and give every penny of it. You've got to give it back to the Lord. That's not the command here. But keep reading. We'll see what happens. Verse 4. While it remained unsold, this is Peter talking to Ananias, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So the question we've got to ask in this story is what was wrong with what Ananias did. What was so bad about what he did here? The problem that we're going to see is that Ananias, he presented the gift as if it were the entire amount as opposed to just admitting what he was giving. And then we're going to pick up the story and we're going to continue to read. I'm going to read all of it from chapters, um, verse 5 through 11. So it says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such. And she said, yes, for such. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Verse 10. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So why is it that Ananias and Sapphira, that they did what they did? What, what, what was the purpose there? Why did they lie? 
You gotta understand, anytime we see a lie, there's a, the lie is symptomatic of something much deeper. What was deeper than the lie was the fact that they were living for two things. They were living for the applause of man and for the love of money. So they lied about it because they had this passion for they wanted other people to like them, but they also wanted to hold on to their money. So they knew that they couldn't receive the praise of others unless they gave away their money. But the problem was they loved their money too much. So what did they do? So they lied about giving away all of their money in order to receive the praise of people. They thought they could get it both ways. We'll lie about it so they'll think that we're humble and then they'll praise us for doing these good things, but then we can still keep hold of our money. Do you see how they are the exact opposite of Barnabas? Barnabas, this man that was filled with the Spirit, who was always looking for ways that he could lay down his possessions in order to reach people. And then you've got Ananias, and along with his wife, it said with full knowledge, that they were filled with the love of money and the love of the praise of people. So what do they do? They lie about being generous with their money so that they can receive the applause of man. Don't miss this, friends. Lying always comes from somewhere else. Anytime we, we find out, we see that we're lying in our hearts or someone that we love is lying to us, there's always something much deeper than just that lie. There's going to be a, a source that's there. Sins like lying and jealousy and not being generous. It's like smoke that we have from a fire. Whenever you see a fire, you're not just going to fan away the flames and say, I've got to get rid of the, uh, of the smoke here. No, no, no. What do you do? You say, I've got to, if there's smoke, there's what? There's fire. So I've got to go find the source of the smoke. And so now I'm going to go to the source and I'm going to put that fire out. Friends, when you see things like lying and cheating and jealousy and coveting, we don't need to just try to get rid of that sin in our life. Instead, what we need to do is we need to go find the source. Why are we lying? Why are these sins a part of our life? And we need to get rid of the source. And let me tell you what the source always is. The source always loves the attention of people or self more than God. The source of all sin is selfishness. The source of all sin is pride. When we are wanting something from ourselves, maybe it's we want to keep something instead of giving it to God. Maybe it's we want other people to think something about us, so we lie and we desire the applause of man more than pleasing God. Does this sound like last week's sermon? Remember in that sermon in Acts chapter 4, they said, God, we desire for you to be honored and glorified more than we want the applause of man. So what we need to do is not stop uh, lying or cheating or coveting. Yes, we do need to do those things. But if all we do is focus on the symptom, then we're never going to get to the source. And the source of the matter is that we have a sinful heart. So instead of focusing so much on the sinful action, what I believe we should do is focus on filling our hearts with the love of God. Because the more we love God, the more we fill our hearts with the things of God, the less likely we are to be involved in those things. Don't just fan away the smoke in your life, but fill your hearts with Scripture. Fill your hearts with things of God. So what is it that God may be teaching us through this story today. It's, a, it's an interesting story, and I, I read this for months and months, saying, okay, how am I going to turn this into a sermon? Uh, I said earlier in our prayer time, maybe I'll just read it, and then we'll take up another offering, um, and we'll see. Maybe it'll work. We're not doing that, all right? Too obvious. Come on, guys. But what is it that God wants to teach us through this story of Ananias and Sapphira? 
Let me give you a, a few possibilities of what we can take away. Number one, in the church, there are two kinds of people. There are two kinds of people, and it is nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. In every church in America today and all across the world, there are men and women sitting in pews, sitting in chairs, and some are like Barnabas, and some are like Ananias and Sapphira. And it is nearly impossible to distinguish the two just from our, our eyes. But underneath what they say with their lips, underneath what we pretend to live with our lives, we can say, we can confess with our mouth, we can sing with all of our hearts that we love Jesus, that Jesus, you're my everything, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. Underneath it, some of us still have a desire to love money and to love the applause of people more than we have that burning desire to honor God. So the question, of course, is, well, how do I know which one I am? How do I know if I'm Barnabas or if I'm Ananias and Sapphira? Well, friends, you've got to dig deep. You have to look underneath just what your lips are saying, and you have to see what it is that's going on in your heart. See, for, for Ananias and Sapphira, they were saying one thing, but their secrets, but their desires and passions, they were very inconsistent, and they began to understand very clearly what was going on in their life. See, what is hidden in your heart that no one else can see? What is it? No one else in this room may know, but what is it that's hidden in your heart that no one else can see? You need to ask yourself, friends, is what I am saying with my mouth, the words of my lips on Sunday morning, does my lifestyle, both seen and unseen, does it back up that statement? Does what I say on Sunday morning, does what I sing on Sunday morning, does it completely back up the way I live my life on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? Or is there a disconnect? Because listen, if what your mouth says is different from what your life says, I hate to say this, but it's true, then what your life says is probably a better testimony of what you really believe than what you're saying with your lips. Something that we can learn from this story. The second thing that we can see is that we cannot hide from God. There's no hiding from God. Understand, friends, that there is nothing that is hidden before the sight of our holy and almighty God. One day, everything that is hidden in our hearts, everything that we think that we have kept hidden from everyone else, one day it will be shouted from the rooftops. Hebrews 4.13, I believe, is one of the scariest verses in the Bible. Hebrews 4.13 says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Church, I know that verse is true. You know that verse is true. You know who else knew that was true? Ananias and Sapphira. They knew that they would have to give an account before a holy God one day, but they were so consumed with the praise of other people that they quickly forgot about their passion, about their desire to stop and reflect on whether or not they were right with God. Church, one day it's not going to matter what people think about you. It's not going to matter what your friends, what your coworkers think about you because it will be revealed to you and to them who you really are. We can't hide from God. The third thing we can learn from this passage of Scripture is that fear is a part of worship. <clears throat> Did you see how many times 
The word fear is used in, in, in verses 5 through 11. In verse 5, it says, And great fear came upon all who heard it. Move on to verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And then the result, we didn't get to it, but in the result in verse 14, it says, And more than ever, don't miss that phrase, and more than ever, as a result of this fear, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of men and women. See, somewhere along the way, and I'm not sure where this happened, but we've reduced God to this cosmic teddy bear and that his whole goal in life is to come give you warm, fuzzy feelings and tingly feelings in worship, and that is what God's goal in life is to come and just make you feel good about yourself. Yes, friends, I understand God is love. God does want to come and comfort you during your times of, that you need him, but let me be clear on this. You can only know that this love of God when you first understand his power, when you first understand his might, when you first understand his justice. The love of God grows out of a result of the fear of God. I'm afraid that so many of us, we've never learned how to truly love God because we don't fear him in the first place. Until we learn how to fear him, and when I say the word fear, I'm saying it's a respect, an awe, not I'm terrified of him, but until we have this fear of God, we will never be able to truly love him in the way that Scripture calls us to love him. It's the fear of God that makes the love of God more intense. See, church, I don't want us to come together in worship and forget that as we come together collectively in worship, let's don't forget that we are coming together to worship a holy, mighty, powerful God. Let's not just reduce him to such casual worship that we can just enter into this place and we can treat him as if he's the man upstairs. Let's don't come into worship and sing songs of his praise and lift him up with our arms folded, with our coffee cup in our hand, waiting until we can sit down. By the way, I don't care if you drink coffee in here. That's not the issue. The issue is how can we come into worship and sing about our holy God and be so flippant about it? Be so just, I'm just going to sit back. Let's don't become so casual in our worship of this holy, powerful God that we treat it also like it's some pep rally that we're going to cheer for Alabama or Auburn before they play in the Iron Bowl. If we truly knew, if we truly could understand how holy and how powerful our God is, I believe that we would tremble in his presence. Now, praise God for the cross. Amen. Praise God that through Jesus that we can boldly, not timidly, but he says boldly come before him and enter into his presence. Praise God for Romans 8, 1, that therefore there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can look up to God and we can realize that love comes from fear. A fear of a God who literally through a word he speaks in creation happens. A God that has never once been had any, any sin in his life. And then we can understand that it's that God. This holy God who speaks and creation begins, who's absolutely perfect that he cannot sin, it is that God who calls me his son. That God who calls me his daughter. As our fear of God, our respect of God increases, so does the love of God. It becomes more intense to us. Friends, fear must be a part of worship. 
In a couple weeks, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, but let me just read one verse from Acts chapter 9, and I want you to see where I'm going with this. Acts chapter 9, verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And listen to this next phrase. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here, right in that one verse, you have the whole package. They walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. How were they able to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? you got to go back a phrase. Because they had the fear of the Lord. And when those two things come together, the fear of the Lord, the comfort of the Holy Spirit that comes as a result of fearing the Lord, the church grew. But it didn't just grow. It did what? That last word, it multiplied. I think John Newton, the author, the composer of of Amazing Grace. He said it best in the second verse of Amazing Grace. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to, what's that next word? To fear and grace my fears relieve. Have you ever thought about that verse? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How what? Precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Do you know why that grace was so precious to John Newton? Because the fear of God was real in his life. Have we as American Christians lost what it means to fear God? Because church family, when we fear God first, then our earthly fears are relieved. It goes back to the the prayer in chapter 4. They were able to begin praying, O sovereign Lord, who you knew all of this was to take place, everything that happened, everything that Pontius Pilate, all the Roman soldiers, that was all part of your plan. And when we begin with that foundation that I understand that God is in complete control, nothing takes him off off guard, he's never up in heaven wringing his hands, and oh man, I didn't see that happening. When we begin with that foundation, that fear of God, then we don't have to fear what anything the world sends our way. Because God is still in control. The fourth thing that we can learn from this passage of Scripture is that sin is a deadly serious matter to God. Let me say that again. Sin is a deadly serious matter to God. Church family, if God took His perfect Son, and if He put Him on a cross, and He allowed spikes to be put in His hands, spikes to be put in His nails, I mean to be put in His feet, if He allowed Him to be stripped naked, to be humiliated, hanging on a cross for all of the world to see, if our God loved us so much that He allowed His Son to hang on a cross, Lord, so that they, you could have the Roman soldiers that would come, that they would spit in His face, that would rip parts of His beard out of His face, that they would then take His back and they would beat it, that He was un, un, couldn't even recognize who He was. If we can understand that and we don't see how serious God takes sin, I'm not sure we will ever understand that. Sin is a deadly, serious matter to God. But we have these four things, and you say, okay, that's great, so I, I can take that, but what do I do with this? What is this text going to do with me? How is this going to to, to change how I apply it to my life. Well, each week I've tried to, to make sure that we don't just read it and say again, okay, that's great back, back then, but let's look quickly in the next few minutes. Let me give you four ways that I believe that you can ask these four questions and apply Acts chapter 5 to your life. Number one, the first question I want you to wrestle with this week is this question. Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you are? 
Are you pretending to be more spiritual than you really are? Again, you confess that Jesus is Lord with your lips, but there's nothing in your lifestyle that backs it up. Maybe you can look and say, man, God, are there areas of my life that I'm just pretending to be someone I'm not? Second question, what areas have you not surrendered to God? What areas of your life have you not surrendered to God? You can sing the song, I surrender all, but you know that there is something deep in your life, something deep in your heart that you still haven't fully given over to God. You still have the secret area of your life. That, oh, I, just, I can't give that over to God. Maybe you want to start by looking at the example of, of Ananias and Sapphira. And you saw that they loved money and they loved the applause of man more than they desired to please God. Maybe... You and I, we're more concerned with our reputation, more maybe, maybe we're more concerned with what other people think about us, that we aren't even sure about where our coworkers, where our neighbors, where our family would go if they were to die today. Have we shared our, the gospel with them? Or are we afraid, oh, I can't, I can't do that because that might be offensive. Have we even begun to pray for their salvation? Or are we more concerned with them liking us, not causing a scene? Or maybe we're like Ananias and Sapphira and that it's in, in the area of finances. You say, Pastor, I know I'm supposed to be generous with money. I know that, that we're supposed to give a tithe, and that's just in the Old Testament, the New Testament. We're supposed to give even more than that, that we're supposed to honor the Lord. But when you say that you are honoring God with your finances and you look at your lifestyle, friends, what you say with your debit card probably says more about who you believe is your Lord and Savior than what you say with your lips. If we're going to surrender all, that means not only our time, it also means our finances. Is God first place in your life, in every area of your life? Is it completely surrendered to Him? Third question you can ask this week. Are you treating God flippantly? Have you treated God, have you treated salvation as a get-out-of-hell-free card? I got my salvation, I got my ticket punched, I know where I'm going when I die, so now it doesn't matter what else I do with the rest of my life, I can keep on sinning, it doesn't really matter because I know I'm going to heaven. Friends, have you taken the salvation that was purchased for you? What, how was it purchased for you? By the death of Jesus on the cross, have you taken that and have you used it as a license to sin? Friends, listen to me. Do you not see in this story of in Acts chapter 5 of how God feels when you and I, when we try to take advantage of what He's done for you. Church, do not take salvation and His grace as an excuse to not be focused on personal holiness. Don't take His grace as an excuse. I don't have to worry about becoming more like Jesus because I'm going to keep on sinning. No, no, no. You totally missed the point and you're taking God flippantly. And fourth and finally, the last question. Are you more concerned about your glory than God's glory? When you come into a place like this on Sunday mornings, are you more concerned about what the person next to you is going to say, about what you're wearing, about how your kids are acting? Are we more concerned about what other people are going to say to us and about us more than we are about our lifestyles honoring and pleasing God? Now at this point, before the lightning strikes the podium, I've got to take a step away here, all right? I'm just going to be transparent with you. I struggle with this one. I struggle with this because every single Sunday I stand before you on this stage for 30, 40, hopefully not longer than 40 minutes most days, all right? I stand before you and I know that all eyeballs are on me. 
Are you going gray? Has he gained weight? Does his clothes match? What about that? Are his pants too short? Are his pants too long? Are his stories funny? Are they accurate? Are they relevant? How long is he going to go? And believe me, all those things are going through my mind, and I am ashamed how many times I stand before you, and I am more petrified about what you as a congregation think about me more than I am about is what I'm saying, honoring and pleasing of the Lord. Friends, we are to constantly give God glory. May we never be responsible for stealing his glory. Last week we said whenever glory is given back to us, we are immediately to deflect it back to him because we are storytellers and we have one story to tell and it's not about me. Are we giving glory or are we taking God's glory away? Whenever you look at the bottom line, the bottom line is this. What's underneath the surface? God hears the confession of our mouth. He hears the words that we say, but he sees our actions. He sees every deed in our life. But let me close with this, because I don't want to leave with all of us defeated. Happy Fourth of July. We're all liars and sinners and stealers and all that. No, no, no. Let, 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 me, let me leave with some hope here. Because listen, let's be honest. Which one of us in this room is not Ananias? Which one of us in this room has not lied? Which one of us has not stolen from God at some point, whether we've taken his glory away, whether we haven't given what we should, whatever it might be. We've, we're all that, so why doesn't God just strike us down right now? One verse. Here's why. 1 John 1, 9. First three words. If we confess. If we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, church, if you expose your sin, he's going to forgive you. But it is when you hide your sin that he'll condemn you. I think it's interesting that Peter goes up to Ananias and he says that Satan has filled your what? Your heart. It's interesting that Peter says that because do you remember when else Jesus said that to someone else? Who did he say it to? He said it to Peter. Remember when Peter was there with Jesus and Jesus looking at Peter says, get behind me and he calls him what? Satan. So why is it that Ananias dies but Peter lives? Why was Peter not struck down if Satan had come and filled his heart at that time as well? One word, repentance. Peter repented of his sin. Peter confessed his sin. Church family, it's not the sin that is fatal. It is the covering up of our sin that's fatal. When you sin, your sin is not going to send you to hell. It's the covering up of your sin. It's trying to, to cover it up and act like that we haven't sinned. That is what will send us to hell when we refuse to admit, to confess, and to repent of our sin. If you confess your sin... Praise God for that. He is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sin and from all our unrighteousness. But if we cover it up, he is faithful and just, and he will punish us. If you own your sin, he'll release you from it. But if we try to hide it, we will be held accountable for it. The message of the gospel is this. Each week I've closed with this, and I've worded it a different way. Not that I'm explaining the gospel a different way, but I'm trying to give you a different word picture. Here's the message of the gospel. You are known fully by God. Hebrews 4.13, all of your deeds are laid bare before him. That's a scary thought. But praise God, not only are you known fully, 
You are loved completely. What a freeing thought. That the God who knows every aspect of your life, if you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are not only known fully, but you are loved completely. Tim Keller puts it this way. You are more sinful than you could dare imagine and more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. If you confess your sin, it should be pretty easy. I'm going to confess my sin that, guess what? Hebrews 4.13 says he already knows my sin about me. If we confess our sin, he will forgive you. But if you hide it, there's no hope. Every single one of us in this room here, we are all Ananias and Sapphira. But Jesus died. But Jesus died on the cross. He took our death so that if you confess your sin, if you embrace the grace of Jesus Christ, his acceptance can become yours. Why? Because God accepts you and me just as he accepts his son Jesus. And his death becomes our death. So we no longer have to die, but we will live for eternity with him. And friends, that is the good news of the gospel. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we do ask that you would forgive us for times that we have lived as if everything that we are, everything that we have is a result of pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps, as if we have earned the grace, if we have earned the status in life that we have today. And Lord, we confess that we are nothing apart from the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. We humbly and yet boldly come before your throne to say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy that you entrust to us, not because of our good works, but because of the sacrifice that Jesus laid before you and it's credited to us. What a blessing that is. Lord, I pray for every single one of us here in this room today. I pray that the Holy Spirit will convict us of areas of our life where we have not fully surrendered our life to you. Lord, understanding that you're not trying to keep us from joy. You're not trying to keep us from having an incredible life. Lord, you want us to have an abundant, full life. And that comes when we fully surrender to you. That comes when we live our lives with an eternal perspective. So would your Holy Spirit come and would you convict us of areas of our life that are not lined up with your word? And would you give us the courage? Would you give us the boldness so that we can walk in the light of your mercy and grace, so that we can be a shining example of what a transformed life looks like that walks in the light of the gospel. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.